the Lord. You can be seated. This past week, or this past week, or last week, actually, I was reading a devotional by a man by the name of Robert Hawker, and he talked about praising the Lord. And he said we should praise the Lord all of our life. And he said, as a matter of fact, when when my when death takes the last gasp of air from my lips, may I enter heaven in the same key of praise to my God. Amen. A life of praise, a life of thanksgiving to our great God. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 21. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, and verse number 33. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verse number 33. We, a couple of weeks ago, started a series on the Passion Week of Christ, the last week of Christ's ministry. And I told you that a majority of the New Testament Gospels are taken up not with His years of ministry nor His early life, but the majority of those are taken up with the last week of Jesus' ministry. And so we started back on Sunday, which is Palm Sunday. Remember Jesus came through in a day of declaration, declaring Himself to be Messiah, the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy of the coming Messiah, low and on a donkey. Last week we looked at a we looked at a day of inspection, inspection where Jesus come in. Do you remember how he inspected the fruit tree and saw no fruit, cursed it? Then he went into the temple, and because of uh, of what he saw in the temple courtyard, the selling of doves and the den of animals and the crooked money changers, he flipped tables. And I talked about how that both of these, the, the fig tree and, and the, uh, temple, uh, the temple courtyard scene, really speak of the same thing, true fruit unto God. And true reality of conversion in our experience of knowing God and producing godly fruit. Well today I want us to look at, uh, this would be probably Tuesday, uh, Tuesday's account, the day after the fig tree and the uh, turning over the tables. And I want us to look at a day of confrontation. A day of confrontation. Matthew chapter number 21 and look at verse number 33. Jesus is speaking here and he says, hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it around, around about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and led it out to a husbandman and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandman that he might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did it unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him 
and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do? Here's Jesus asking a question. What will he do unto those husbandmen? Verse 41. They, now this they are the, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious elite uh, the, of the temple. They said unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits of in their season. Jesus said unto them, Did ye never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. When the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because... They took him for a prophet. I want to talk to you this morning about a day of confrontation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would give us Holy Spirit lenses to be able to see what your word has to say. May your Holy Spirit come and give us focus, give us clarity. Let us see what the truth of this parable is. And let us not be guilty of doing the same as the scribes and the Pharisees. God teaches on this very important day of confrontation. God, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Over almost a decade ago, over, yes, over a decade ago, me and my family, this was before Kaylin was born, and she reminds me of this all the time, me and my family went to Disneyland, down, or Disney World down in Florida. We went down to Orlando to spend a week down there and went to the theme park. You know, the crowds were kind of nice. It was mild. It was in October. Weather wasn't too bad. It was a great week. And we fit as many of those rides in the schedule as we possibly could. The food was excellent. The room was okay. A little small, but it will do. Uh, but if you ask my other three children that went on this trip, Allison, Evan, and Grayson, what the most memorable part of that trip was, they are not going to tell you it was the encounter with Donald, Goofy, or Mickey. They won't talk about Space Mountain, the test track, or the rock and roll roller coaster. No, the most memorable point of that vacation was not actually at Disney, uh, Disney World at all. It was on the way to Disney World. That was the most memorable part because they would distinctly remember about the moment they were almost killed. I had been driving all the way down from our home in Rossville all the way down to Orlando. We didn't take a plane. We drove all the way down. And all that time down, if you'll remember how it looks on 75 South, you've got, but for the most part, two lanes going south. Two lanes going north, a big wide median in the middle. All the way down, it had been just like that. I'm going to give you my defense. But all the way down, it had looked just like that until we got to just outside Orlando. 
Then something in the road changed. Instead of it being two lanes this way and two lanes that way, it became two lanes back and forth that way and two lanes back and forth this way. So I'm driving down the road. I see that the car in front of me is not going as fast as I thought they should. We're getting close to Disneyland, Disney World. I want to get there. And so, well, thinking I'm on just 75 South, basically, I pulled over in the fast lane and gave it a little bit of gas. And so I'm just cruising by, just slow as possible, passing them up. All of a sudden, I see a car on the other end coming towards me, come right around the curve. It was a big black SUV. And I'm going head to head against this guy. And I look, I remember distinctly looking over at Carrie. I was like, look at this idiot. He is, he is on the wrong side of the freeway. It's coming right at me. All of a sudden, my wife reminded me who the idiot was. Because it was not me that was in the right. It was the other car. I was the one that was wrong. All of a sudden, I whipped that truck over into the other lane. It threw Allison, Evan, and Grayson all over the back. We about had whiplash. But it took that kind of situation, a confrontation, a head-on collision to show me that I was in the wrong. My thinking was wrong, not the other guy. Okay? So when we come to this passage of Scripture... We need to remember that that is the premise of what is happening here. This is a head-on collision between Jesus and the religious purveyors of that day. Do you remember the day before? How did He cleanse the temple? I talked about that a moment ago. Jesus flipped over tables. Uh, Jesus made all kinds of havoc in that outer court. He disrupted their little business happenings going on there. And Jesus made an exit not long after that. So here comes Jesus again the next day. And buddy, everybody's ready for Him. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, would not once again be caught off guard. And so they are going to meet Jesus at the door and begin to ask Him some head-on questions. And what it is, is this is a head-on collision in which the Sanhedrin, the scribes, and the Pharisees, they are in the wrong and they don't know it. They don't know that they're wrong. They're coming straight head-on towards Jesus and what takes place is an enlightening an explosive confrontation that ends with Jesus unmasking their hypocrisy and in a, in a series of woes. Matter of fact, if you read chapter number 23, a few chapters ahead, and verse 13 through 16, 23, 25, and 29, Jesus is wearing them out. Woe unto you! Woe unto you! Woe! They're getting demolished by the Son of God's truth given to them. Now, one thing I want you to know about our series on the Passion Week. This particular day, which I believe maybe is Tuesday, is a day that is filled with Jesus' teaching. You see, the parable that I told you, did you notice what it said in verse 33? Hear another parable. Jesus had been speaking before this parable and Jesus will speak after this parable. There is a lot that took place in this day of confrontation. 
Jesus talks about the withered fig tree. He, the, uh, the questions uh, asked to Jesus in this passage, the woes were pronounced. Jesus also observed the two widows' mites, the Gentiles seeking Christ, the discourse about the future. Much of Jesus' words about prophecy come in this day in teaching to His disciples. So needless to say, there's a lot being taught in this particular day that we're not going to cover. Because we would spend several, several messages on this one particular day. But if I had to pick one message, one thing Jesus said that seemed to sum up what this day was about, I would pick this parable of the vineyard, the wicked renters, I call it in many cases, but the parable of the, of the vineyard. And see, this is a parable that shows who is in the wrong. It may well be the confrontation that is raging in your heart this morning may be like the confrontation that is happening in this parable. It may be that you're in the wrong just like me and don't know it. I'm calling this car down the road an idiot when guess what? I'm the idiot. I'm the one in the wrong. And so we need the best thing that can happen to us when we're in the wrong is for someone to show us we're in the wrong. And that's exactly what Jesus does. You see, you, if someone is going down the wrong way on a one-way street, they need to be confronted with their wrong and turned around before disastrous consequences befall them. I believe there are three keys that every one of us can use to understand this confrontation. So I want to bring those to light. Three keys and then we'll be done. Number one, I want you to first of all be aware of God's generous supply. Jesus in this parable goes through great, uh, uh, great uh, uh, exhaustive description to show the generous supply given. Now I want you to realize that this whole confrontation come to be over a question. Go back to verse number 23. Here, here we see uh, Jesus being confronted here. And it says, And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the temple came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? So the whole question asked Jesus and what he's going to go on in the, in the following chapters to describe to them is an answer to this question about authority. Who gave you this authority? Now, this question is a trap. It's a trap. Because if Jesus says that God gave me this authority, then he would fall out of favor with the multitudes that saw him as a prophet and they could arrest him for blasphemy on the spot. Jesus would not fall for their trap. If Jesus were to, uh, to respond to their question by saying God gave him the authority, they could arrest him on the spot. But Jesus would not be duped by their tactics. He tells them a story. See, a lot of times you can prove a point by telling a story. Have them fill in the blanks. Let them say it. 
<laughs> you see, that's what he's doing in here. He's talking about the Father giving him authority without saying the Father gave me authority. He's telling a story. So I want you to see, first of all, this. He tells this story to diffuse their trap and at the same time, it's genius, expose their own intent. Show what they're trying to do. Notice, first of all, we have a clear illustration. A clear illustration. Here, Pete, here, another parable Jesus said, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard, hedged it about, round about, digged a wine press in it, built a tower, and led it out to husband and went into a far country. Here, Jesus pictures for them this landowner, landowner who, had, who had went to great lengths to make a wonderful, beautiful, prosperous vineyard. It had everything required to bring the owner a gratifying harvest. He, uh, it had, it had the, a vast uh, field of grapevines. It had a wine press where, where that was where they put, you know, you ever seen that famous Lucy episode where she's stepping on the grapes? You know, I love Lucy episode. Well, they, this was what it had. It had a big vat and they would crush the grapes in there called a wine press. It had one of those. It had walls and towers to protect it. I mean, thieves couldn't come in and steal grapes from it. It was a place that was lacking nothing to be prosperous for generations. God had, or this, this landowner, don't let the cat out of the bag. This landowner had gone to great lengths to give them everything they needed to be prosperous. You know, Israel is often pictured in the Old Testament as a vine. Think about these, Psalms 80, 8 through 9. Thou hast, brought, thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it. Thou didst cause it to take deep root and fill the land. He's comparing Israel to a grapevine. Isaiah, Isaiah 5, 1 and 2 is even more explicit. Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in, in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out of the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it. It's almost like Jesus had read this before. What do you think? I think Jesus knew. I think that's where he's, where he's getting his parable from. He had built a tower in the midst of it, also made a wine press therein, and he, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Jeremiah does the same. Jeremiah 2.21 Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy and right seed. How then art thou turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? The point of the story is opening up. God had been good to Israel. There's no doubt when Jesus talks about this vine, he's talking about Israel. God had been good to Israel. He had brought them from slavery out of the land of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. God had provided land where they could reap crops that they never sowed and lived in houses that they never built. God had protected them by His divine hand of power. They had become a prosperous a nation of great bounty. What nation in the history of the world has ever been plucked up from their homeland dispersed around the earth and somehow formed itself back 
into its homeland. There is no other people or nation on this planet that have done the same thing like the Jewish people, like Israel itself. I believe God still holds a place of special uh, interest for the nation and the people of Israel. Several years ago there was an article by the New York Times entitled this, Christians Loving Jews. The background of the article was the surprise over American evangelical Christians' appreciation for the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu who spoke before Congress. I don't know if you can remember that. Several, year, several, several years ago, he spoke before Congress and evangelical Christians praised him for his speech. And this article was puzzled by this. Christianity and Judaism are incompatible. They One may be the progenitor of the other, but they're not the same. They don't believe the same. Why do evangelical Christians look to support, praise the Jewish prime minister? Because they are God's people of promise. God's Bible gives them a special place of prominence of uh, they are God's people. God had entrusted them with the oracles of God, the word of God, the worship of God, the wonders of God. God had been good to them. Listen, I, I don't agree with everything Israel does governmentally and politically. Uh, sometimes I believe that they can do some things that are unjust. Just like Israel has always been. They've always had a tendency to be unjust. By no means do I mean these people are just because they're biologically Jewish are going to go to heaven. No, the only way to go to heaven is through Jesus. But I do believe what the Bible says when it says, I will bless them that bless thee. Talking about the Abrahamic seed. I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse thee. There is something to this relationship that God has with the people of Israel. And that is what Jesus is describing in parabolic language. It's a clear illustration. That's what I'm trying to say. There's no, there's no misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. No, it's absolutely clear. He is referring, you saw it, in Isaiah 5 and 1 and 2. He is he's word for word describing how Isaiah described Israel. Now, I want you to see that not only is there a clear illustration, but a common application. Brother Ronnie, I'm not a Jew. <laughs> I, I, I didn't come from that Abrahamic seed. I don't, know, I don't know anything about being a Jew. Brother Ronnie, what does this got to do with me? Listen, the same could be said about any number of us in this room. That story about a little boy. Uh, that went to the grocery store shopping with his mother. And the store owner who was at the checkout line had a, a practice in which when he saw children come through, he would give them some candy. He would let them reach into a jar and pull out some candy to take with them. This would entice the children to beg mom to go to that grocery store. It makes a lot of sense, actually. And so this boy was going with his mom through the checkout line and the grocer saw him and he brought over that big jar of candy 
And he said, he asked him, can, can your son have some candy? Oh, yes, yeah, sure. Here, son, reach in and grab you some candy. Well, the boy was kind of shy. And he stood behind his mama and he wouldn't. Go ahead, son. Just go ahead. Take, take all you want. Reach in there and grab it. And the son was still shy and, and he wouldn't do it. And last ditch attempt, please, son, at least go in there and get one piece of candy. Little boy didn't. But he said very faintly, he said, will you reach in and get it? The... Uh, the grocer said, well, okay, I guess I will. And the grocer reached in, grabbed a handful of candy, and put it in the boy's hand who had to double his hands in order to have the candy. Well, he walked out of the grocery store with uh, two handfuls of candy. And his mother asked him, son, why didn't you reach in and get the candy yourself? Why did you force the grocer, the grocer to give you the candy? He said, because his hands are bigger than mine. You'll get that on the way home. <laughs> hey, listen. Hasn't God been double-handed with us? He's been double-handed with every one of us. God's been more gracious and kind and providing. I know we all got woes and hurts and pain. But listen, this is for our American context. Right where we are. I mean, you, you want to see people having problems. You go across the border to Mexico. You go down to South America. You go over to Africa. And you'll bless God for the pains and woes and a little bit of high gas prices you experience here. God's been double-handed good to us. Just like He'd been good to Israel. This message applies to us. God's been good to us. He's given us a vineyard. He's given us blessing upon blessing that we could not possibly deserve God's been good to us for our lives God's big hand of supply has blessed us we too just like Israel are a blessed people and if we're going to understand the urgency of this confrontation we need to realize that God has been blessed that God has blessed us as a people now notice second of all not only be aware of God's generous supply. And that's what, we, that's what he described. A vineyard that has everything that is needed. A, they didn't have to work for it. They didn't have to build it. It was provided to them. Second of all. A, be assured of God's gracious sending. Our parable reads that after he created this beautiful vineyard. Everything it needs to prosper. The master leaves for a far country and entrusts it into the hands of husbandmen. Now we might think of husbandmen like uh, sharecroppers. You know, you ever seen, we don't see much sharecropping in our day and time, but way back in the early part of the 20th century, in the 1800, late 1800s, sharecropping was something that would happen. An owner would have a great piece of land. He would parcel out portions of that land to families. They would live in that, on that property. They would plant those fields, harvest all that, and give certain portions uh, to the landowner. And they would keep some, plus along have a place to live and, and, and eke out a life as a sharecropper. That's what sharecropping's about. And so that's kind of what's going on here. This master husband, he leaves for a far country. He's going down to the Caribbean, going to live down there. And he's just going to live off of the interest of what they what they produce on that land. He's going to get a cut from every one of the husbandmen that worked that property. And the owner gave direction before leaving and trusted the men to produce the desired and the required produce from the land. You realize that God does the same with all of humanity. God gave us a beautiful world. A, a world of bounty. 
Even though it is cursed, it is still a world that is uh, able to produce bountifully. And God gives all humanity instructions for how to please Him. How to give what is due to God's name. He left instruction. He left instruction for us to obey. obey. God doesn't police us like, uh, give us police-like supervision uh, that He requires a return. God doesn't send emissaries to your house to point out every time you're not obeying, you're not doing what that word says, you need to do. He he doesn't police us like that. God doesn't want robots. He wants people that love Him and trust Him and He can trust them. He He entrusts obedience into the hands of humanity. God's not going to hogtie anybody and drag them to heaven. He has revealed His will, His word, and so therefore He he, he demands us to obey. And what did these men do with all that had been given them? They want to steal it for themselves. Notice, Notice what follows. First of all, we see His servants were abused. His servants were abused. Look at verse 34. And when the time of the fruit drew near, this is the time that the owner would have received some sort of recompense for, uh, for uh, kind of sharing his property. When the time of fruit was near, he sent his servants to the husbandman that they might receive the fruits thereof uh, of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. The landowner is looking to receive the benefit of his extended provision to his servants. And they, these servants are clearly the prophets of the Old Testament. Israel had a long history of mistreating and murdering their own prophets. Listen to 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by His messengers, rising up at times and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. And they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misunderstood his prophets until the wrath of God arose against his people till there was no remedy. God had sent prophet after prophet. You know all those little books at the the end of the Old Testament? Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah, all those those eye books at the end of there. God's sending prophets. He's sending his messengers. If you read the biography and history of these men, you'll find that they were terribly treated. Elijah and Elisha were hunted as fugitives. Jeremiah was imprisoned in a slime-filled well. Tradition has it that evil king Manasseh subjected the godly prophet Isaiah to death by putting him in a hollow trunk of a tree then commanding that that tree be sawn in half. Hebrews talks about how the the terrible mistreatment, Hebrews 11 talks about the terrible mistreatment of the prophets of God. And yet God, what did He do? He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. What grace! You know, after He killed the first servant, I think I would have come in with an army and killed every one of those husbandmen and and dispossessed them of their, not only of the land, but of their heads as well. I'd have took care of them if it had been me. But he's not that way. He's not like me. God sent messenger after messenger after messenger just like this man did. Again, 
Verse 36, he sent other servants for that uh, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise again and again and again. God's character is shown in that he is merciful, in that he is long-suffering, that he is gracious and kind, and his character is the same today. God still sends his servants. Every steeple, every steeple that dots the landscape of this mountain is God reaching out with grace. Every missionary that walks along a highways in a foreign land is an extension of the favor and the good kindness of God. Every gospel track, every message on the TV or the radio is a broadcast of God's will to be reconciled with lost and sinful man. What I am doing today and I will do this afternoon at the county jail is an expression of God's mercy. God could cut it off. God doesn't have to send prophets. He doesn't have to send preachers. He doesn't have to send witnesses. He could just say, all right, fine. I'll deal with you in my day of judgment. You want to treat my prophets that way? You want to treat my, <coughs> my messengers that way? Fine. We'll just settle the account when I come in person. Years ago, at Hamilton County Jail, I was preaching and I could see that I was really getting to one particular fellow. I'll never forget it. It's as vivid as now. I was on the slightly raised platform there at the jail. Towards There was smaller, smaller room, smaller aisle, but... There were prisoners in orange jumpsuits about, about a row from the back, standing maybe next to the last row on my left side was a young man that as the more I preached, the redder his face got. The more I spoke about Christ and repentance and putting your trust in Jesus, I could tell the matter he got. At the invitation time, I had everybody stand up to sing a song of invitation and I, 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 I implored them to repent, come to Jesus Give up your rebellion and come and receive Christ. I could see his knuckles grabbing that seat in front of him until finally he did this. To my face. He just turned. I never had it happen before in all the years I've been ministering since 2002, 2003. The guy in the back turned his back to the gospel message. How many times? In this community. Oh, it may not be at church. But as they drive up and down this road, there are many in these communities around us that simply turn their back on God. Refuse His gospel. His gracious, kind extension of the good news of Jesus. His willingness to be reconciled and settle accounts through the, through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. And they refuse. There are many that do the same thing to the hand of God week in and week out. The servants was, were abused, but also his son was assassinated. Look at verse 37. But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, I will they will receive my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, Here is there is the heir. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his 
inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. Finally, the owner sends his son. Again, Jesus could say, hey, I'm just just telling a story here. I'm I'm just telling a story. But if Israel is... The God, if, if the land of Israel is the vine area, Israel itself is the vine, and the husband, I mean, the, 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 the owner, the master is God, well then, if they're putting the two and two together, Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not the next in a long line of prophets. You'll mistreat. I'm different. Matter of fact, uh, William Barclay a Bible commentator uh, made a poignant statement here. He said, this parable contains one of the clearest claims Jesus made to be unique. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a prophet in the ilk of someone like Mohammed, just another spiritual teacher, just another prophet like a Malachi or a Haggai, not, not, a, not a modern day prophet like so to speak. He put himself completely in a different category as the son. Those who come before him were the messengers of God. No one could deny them that honor. But they were servants. This is what Barclay said. He was the son. You ever say, you ever think, God, well, Jesus never said he was God. He never claimed he was God. He's telling a story, and if you fill in the blanks like you're supposed to, he's saying it, blatantly saying it. I'm the son of the Father. I'm the joint. He's the heir of the Father. The, their original question was, where did Jesus get his authority from? It is here that Jesus is answering that question. There's no doubt. That Jesus had authority. They could not deny His authority. They could at all attest to the truth of His authority. Jesus' authority over disease, the cleansing of lepers, the opening of blinded eyes, causing the lame to walk, well, with just a word of His mouth or the touch of His hand, the authority over demons, those that had been plagued for decades by the cold grip of satanic forces were suddenly made free by the command of Jesus, authority over death, Many uh, was there were the occasions where Jesus interrupted the sorrow unleashed by the icy grip of death by reviving the lifeless. There's no doubt. All of them had been witness to His authority, His power. But again, who gave you this authority? They wanted to incriminate Jesus and have cause to punish and silence Him. Jesus tells a story basically and says to them, you fill in the blank. He says it without saying it. Jesus is a genius. He says exactly, he tells them exactly where his authority came from in a parable where they're to fill in the blanks. Also, we know from these words that Jesus had no misgivings about what lay ahead for him. Time and time again, he announced to his disciples leading up to these moments that he would be arrested, that he would be crucified, Buried and raised again. He told his disciples again and again. Even Peter tried to contradict the Lord. Not so, Lord. 
Jesus is telling them over and over that he, he, would be, he would be arrested and executed. And even in this parable, he knew that was coming. Yet he willingly went on sacrificially. In his parable, the husband, husbandman killed the son. These leaders would incite the murder of their Messiah. His hearers, the hearers of this very parable, will murder Jesus. You may say, well, I never killed Jesus. Yet, in rejecting Him, you're doing exactly that. You are casting Him out of every area of your life. You may well be here saying to yourself, I want rid of this man. I don't want him in my life altogether. What right does he have to my life? The Scottish divine Horatius Bonar wrote, "'Twas I that shed that sacred blood, I nailed him to the tree, I crucified the Christ of God, I joined the mockery. In our rebellion, in our refusal of Jesus, we are no different than the crowds that nailed him to the cross, that cried, crucify him, crucify him, we're just as guilty. In our rejection of Jesus. But the gospel says that Christ died for our sins. It was our sins that put Christ on the cross just as if we had driven the nails into His hands and feet ourselves. Horatius Bonar goes in following these lyrics with his gospel conclusion. Yet no less that blood avails to cleanse me from my sin, and not the less that cross prevails to give me peace within. My sin put Jesus on the cross. My sin nailed him to the tree, but his nailing to the tree, through that he provides mercy and grace for me. If you're here today and you have always rejected the Son of God, I am telling you, you can have peace with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly and lastly, be advised of God's guaranteed severity. Verse 40 through 46, I won't reread this passage for sake of time, but you know how it ended. They had attempted to set a trap for the Lord Jesus. But our Lord had turned the tables on them. Jesus offers them a question. Look at verse 40. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They said unto him, and I think at this point they still hadn't got it yet. They still hadn't seen it because their answer is self-incriminating. They will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their season. Game, set, match. Because that's exactly what they're going to do. They are the husbandmen. With their response, they entangled, they are entangled in a snare. For in their own words, they condemn themselves. Jesus then begins to reveal the severity of rejecting the Son. Notice the recompense upon the crime. Verse, 40, uh, uh, verse 42. Did he never, did ye never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same? is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in ours. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. He's pointing them out. This has all gotten real all of a sudden. Because 
He's taking an Old Testament psalm, a prophecy concerning the Messiah about this stone and turning it on to them. You see, their own words had sealed their faith. Jesus actually said, did you, did you catch number four in verse 42? Jesus said, did you never read the scriptures? And we, we would do no harm and say, hey guys, have you ever read the Bible? <laughs> have you ever read what the scripture says? This stone is what Jesus is quoting. Psalm 118, 22 through 23. The stone which the builders refuse has become the head of the corner. And this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in their eyes. Scholars have indicated that this is a messianic prophecy. Many believe this verse is in reference to a story concerning the building of the temple where there was a cornerstone that was queried and sent to the site of the temple. Yet it was mistakenly set aside and no one knew what it was for. Eventually they toppled it down a hill and rejected the stone altogether. But by the end of the construction they discovered that in fact they had rejected the most important stone of the project. That was to be the cornerstone. It was supposed to be the stone everything was built on. That's who the Messiah is. That was an example of what the Jews would do when Jesus came. Push him aside. When he's supposed to be the foundation. He's supposed to be the cornerstone of everything. Jesus is the stone that they're rejecting. Verse 44 tells the implications of rejecting the stone. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. If they reject Jesus, they do so to their own hurt and damage. Jesus is the stumbling stone, the rock of offense. Every person that comes to faith in Jesus Christ must fall on that stone, must be broken on that stone. Don't let the stone crush you, but don't let the stone fall on you and crush you, but let you be broken on that stone. Broken our lives on that stone. Jesus is likening himself to that stone of Daniel. There's a prophecy in Daniel where Daniel sees a stone coming from the heavens not cut by hands and it comes down and strikes the earth and destroys the kingdoms of the earth. That is the Lord Jesus coming in His day of judgment. Listen, hear the word of the Lord. If you reject the stone Jesus, then you do so to your own hurt and calamity in this life and an ultimate destruction in the next life to come. There is a heaven there is a hell, and Jesus is talking about that right here in this parable. If you reject Jesus, you reject the only way to the presence of God, the only way to heaven. There is a life everlasting, there's eternal damnation. If you reject the Son of God, sin and grace, you will incur the crushing weight of God's eternal wrath. I don't see how you can be more clear. How can He be more clear without falling exactly into their trap. Second of all, we see a redistribution of the kingdom. Look at verse 43. I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken away from you. Jesus is saying basically, you're right. You're right. The kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to somebody else. Taken away from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. The Jews took for granted the precious fruit 
that God sought thinking themselves more highly than God, that God would never judge them and remove them from that vineyard. And guess what? God did. In AD 70, Titus destroyed Jerusalem and ended the sacrificial system of worship. The vineyard was taken away and given to others. There is no greater evidence of this than the gospel of Jesus Christ being entrusted to guess what? Gentiles. The predominant, the predominance of the kingdom of God, of the worship of the Messiah to this day around the world is guess who? Gentile people. God gave His kingdom. God entrusted His kingdom to us. Old Gentile dogs, described as the lowest of the low in the scriptures, Gentile dogs. We've always been on the outside looking in for the things of God. But now the Gentiles have been grafted into the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we who are partakers of God's grace in Christ are now those who take God's gracious provision and produce fruit to the glory of God. God forbid that we who have been entrusted with the blessing of God in the grace of Jesus Christ take for granted all that God has given us. In many respects, I believe we do. I believe that the evangelical, and I use that term, it's a confusing term, but it's supposed to mean those that are gospel-centered the evangelical world in America is resting on its lees thinking we'll always have freedom to worship in America. We'll always have the ability to share the gospel in America. And in reality, I believe it's being taken away. Just like the Jews had it taken away from them, if we're not careful, we'll have the gospel attempted to be taken away from us. You know, the United States is now is no more now the leading nation sending out missionaries. That's now in Africa. They're sending out more missionaries than the United States. Matter of fact, they're sending out missionaries to the United States. Let us not take for granted the glorious gospel that we've been given. This parable is a warning to us lest we are guilty of doing the same thing. Reject Jesus and take the glory for ourselves. Wasn't that what the Jews were doing? They weren't rendering to God what was due His name. They were taking the glory for themselves. They were taking the glory for themselves. This is happening in churches all of our land. The garden of the gospel of Jesus Christ is being traded for entertainment and therapeutic morality talks and Christless social crusades. God help us to produce fruit in this church and in our lives. To bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. I know we're a small number. I pray to God every day that He would let us see people saved. Let's see the... This church work grow and, and, and see what God will do and do something great in our midst. But regardless, let us value what we have in the assembling of ourselves, in the worship of God, in the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Let us not take it for granted because that's what the Jews did and they snatched it away. 
What was Jesus' message to the churches that we studied last year? Unless I come and take away your candlestick. I don't know if you know it or not, but it's happening all over the nation. Churches are dropping thousands a month. Candlesticks are going and going and disappearing off the landscape of a godless society that desperately needs the light of the gospel. Don't take this place. Don't take this book. Don't take the way of Christian life for granted. Lest it be taken away from us. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. But I am talking about the fruitful vineyard that we have will be taken away. On Monday, February 6, 1995, according to the Chicago Tribune, a Detroit bus driver finished his shift on Route 21 and headed out for the terminal. But somehow, he took a wrong turn. He didn't arrive at the terminal at the scheduled time of 719. And a short time later, his supervisor started looking for him. Meanwhile, the driver's wife called the terminal and reported that her husband might be disoriented from medication that he had been taking. For six hours, the 40-foot city bus and its driver could not be found. Finally, the state police found the bus and the driver 200 miles northwest of Detroit where he had been driving. The bus was motoring slowly down a rural two-lane two road, weaving slightly from side to side. The police pulled the bus over. The driver said that he was lost. The police uh, news release later stated, quote, the driver had no idea where he was and agreed he had made a wrong turn somewhere. Apparently, this had not occurred to him during the four hours he had driven without finding the bus detour. You know what this man needed? A confrontation. Hey, hey, pull over. You're going the wrong way. That's what Jesus tried to do with these Jews. And they refused. And they murdered their Messiah. But I think that's what we all need. Is a confrontation. A confrontation. What are you doing with the vineyard God gave you? You've got a vineyard. God's been good to you. God's been good to me. It's been good to this church. Look at the beautiful facility we have. I, I just blows my mind every week how, how beautiful this is. How good God's been to us in this place and what He's given to us in our own lives. I know many of you struggle with health, but praise God, you, you, many of you are here today. More than likely next week we'll have others with us. God's been good to us. He's given us a beautiful vineyard. Let's not take it for granted. Let's give Jesus what He's rightfully due. The fruit of repentance, the fruits of our labor, the labor for Him, producing for Him. He's given us something wonderful. Let us not neglect Him. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, and eye closed. If you're here without the Lord Jesus, you've said no to Him so many times. And this Sunday is a head-on collision. You can't keep going the way you're going or you're going to be crushed by the rejected stone. But if you'll come and throw yourself broken on that stone, He'll receive you in repentance of faith. You can become a child of God. Be forgiven of your sin. Claim heaven as your home, your destiny. Have Christ reside in you. Forgive you of your sin. Cleanse your heart and life.
you're here today and the truth be known and it's convicted my heart, what have I done with the garden that God's given me? There's a particular application to this story in that regard, in the life of a Christian. God's given us a wonderful garden. What have we done with it? Do we reject the people God sends? Do we receive His Son? Or do we take things for ourselves? Because in taking the glory for ourselves, we reject our Son. I was recently at a meeting not too long ago. Uh, and I went to go hear an evangelist at a, at a church, and I learned more about him and his kids than I ever learned about Jesus or God. More about his family, more about what he does, more about this or that. Listen, listen, we need to give the glory to God, to Jesus Christ and Him alone. Maybe you can respond to these thoughts. You do that as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the parable that he's given the story that he has shown us and how we need to recognize that none of this is ours that it's all yours that you've lent it to us for us to work and to labor and to give back to you may God may God we realize that may God we receive what your word says may we receive your son and not take the glory for ourselves father we ask this in Jesus precious name amen and amen